I think it is working now, Carol, just FYI. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you now expecting that you would speak to us in your word. And I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts, into our lives, and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Uh, Well, last uh, Tuesday morning, a few of us found ourselves staring up into the sky at 5.30am in the morning. Um, We were staring at what looked like shooting stars. They looked like shooting stars. But I discovered later that actually we were witnessing recently launched Starlink satellites moving into their assigned orbit. So this is, this is what it would have looked like on, on Tuesday morning. This is what it looked like. There were 30 to 50 of them, and about every five seconds another one would appear and follow the trajectory of the rest. Starlink is Elon Musk's uh, global space internet business. Um, it'll set up a network of tens of thousands of these satellites, low Earth orbit satellites, to provide global internet coverage. And so this is the sort of coverage that we're talking about. In Acts, the spread of the gospel has been just as persistent and consistent and just as real as Starlink. And so all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives his disciples a roadmap for the spread of the gospel. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem, the gospel has been, the gospel has been like Starlink. Slowly but surely, it has been going, reaching the ends of the earth, creating a, a global network of churches. Uh, Last week, recently in Acts, uh, as Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, I suggested that we were on the home straight, that we were on the home straight in terms of the book of Acts. And so I thought we would pause for a moment and and look at where where we've come from, look back at all these Starlink satellites, if you will. And Luke, the author of Acts, records these moments. And so the first moment is found back in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples first receive the the Holy Spirit and Peter preaches. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There there goes the first Starlink satellite. The next occurs in chapter 6. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then, after the intense persecution of, 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 um, of Christians in, in Acts 7 to 8, and Paul's conversion in Acts 9, we read at the end of Acts 9, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. There goes another Starlink satellite. And then, after King Herod is eaten by worms, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. There goes another one. 
And then in chapter 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And then in chapter 19, in Ephesus, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And there's one final summary statement in the book of Acts, and I just want you to keep your ear out for it as over the next couple of weeks as we finish off Acts. But what do all these have in common? They have to do with the spread of the gospel, right? They have to do with, with the gospel going out and bearing fruit. It really does go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Asia to Greece to Rome itself. It really does do all of that. But last week, if you remember, it appeared, it appeared as, if, as if everything had come to this grinding halt. Felix, the, the governor of Judea, he imprisons Paul. He imprisons Paul, expecting a bribe for his release. And then in the last verse of chapter 24, we read, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And, and, and we reflected last week on the, on the frustration and the futility of, of life in moments like that. We picked up the story in, in our reading today. Uh, Felix had left the region in a mess and uh, Festus is sent in to clean it up. So what is the first thing that Festus does? He travels to Jerusalem. Three days after he takes up the post, he travels to Jerusalem uh, to establish this working relationship with the Jewish hierarchy. Now, keep in mind it's been two years. It's been two years. And yet when he arrives in Jerusalem, they had not forgotten about Paul. And it seems now that that they, that is a Jewish hierarchy, not just some mob of 40 Jews, but they wanted Paul dead. And so in verse 3 we read, they requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Sound familiar? This has happened before. And yet the, the Romans, first Felix and, and then Festus, sensed that, number one, look, this man is innocent. And two, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a theological matter. And yet the case is dragged on as they sort of play political hot potato. Festus is willing to reopen the case, but on his terms, not theirs. In, in, in his mind, as a Roman official, you're either Roman or not Roman. And because Paul was Roman, Festus doesn't turn him over to the Jews. He, he, he instead invites the Jews to question them, question Paul back in Caesarea, the political capital of Rome, remember the equivalent of, of Canberra. The Jews threw everything they could at him, and they have been for some time now, hoping something would stick, but nothing would. Verse 8, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Now Festus is... Uh, more honourable than, than Felix, but he too plays a little, little of this uh, political hot potato. There's this consensus that Paul is innocent, but, but there's political backlash to consider. Verses 9 to 11, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour once again, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, I am standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I appeal to Caesar. And that was a, that was a sort of uh, a legal formula, if you will. Any Roman citizen in this situation who appealed to Caesar would appear before Caesar. 
And so, and so Paul was kept in custody, away from those who wanted him dead. I wonder if, until this time, Paul had actually thought that all those charges against him would be dropped and he himself would be able to continue his journey on to Jerusalem. But now perhaps it's become clear that God may have other ways of getting him there. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And so Paul, Paul, Paul will preach before kings and, and in Rome. And, and, and this shouldn't surprise us, right? When Paul first became a follower of Jesus, way back in chapter 9, this man... Jesus says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And then only last week, as Paul faced trial after trial, the Lord stood near to Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I'm not sure whether you noticed, but Luke doesn't mention the name of God at all in Acts 25. But the hand of God, the hand of God runs throughout the entire narrative. His, his providential hand orchestrates every single event in this chapter. He protects Paul and sets the apostle on this trajectory toward proclaiming the gospel before the most powerful and influential people in the empire. Paul will go to Rome. And the second half of the chapter, the second half of the chapter concludes with Festus asking the Jewish king, Agrippa, for help in defining the charges against Paul so that he could send him on to Rome, send him on to Caesar, and sound like he knew what he was talking about. I was reminded last week of a scene in the Lord of the Rings. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? There's this scene in the Lord of the Rings called The Last March of the Ents. Do you remember that scene? Where the ants are just, these are tree folk, right? Um, They're just outraged at the evil of Isengard and so they assemble to march on Isengard and together they are this unstoppable force. And the two tiny hobbits, Merry and Pippin, are caught up in it, literally because they're, they're perched on top. They're perched on top of one of the ants. They are carried along for the ride. That's Paul. That's Paul. And, and that is us, actually, as we are caught up in the mission of the risen Lord Jesus. It's this unstoppable force. Paul later writes, and he later writes this from prison, mind you. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. And so I thought of many alternative titles uh, for our series in Acts. You could name it all sorts of different things. I had thought about Acts, Mission Unstoppable, because it, it describes this experience. I decided on Acts, the message and the messenger, because it reminds us that God would use his messengers to declare his message. And and God has chosen Paul to declare it before governors and kings. But you'll notice that some of this news, the good news about Jesus having 
defeated death and, and risen victorious, some of it's already sort of cascading. Some of it's already out there. And so Festus explains to Agrippa in verses 18 through 19, when his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him any, with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. You see what's happening? You have Roman rulers discussing the resurrection of Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? God has started to prepare their hearts for what's going to come in Acts 26. Jesus was dead but is now alive. That is the point of contention because that is the point. Was Jesus raised from the dead? If so, this changes everything. And Paul is now appearing before governors and, and kings to declare this, to declare that Jesus has risen and therefore declare the lordship of Christ. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him that is the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, right? Even the knees of governors and kings should bow before him. He who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification, he alone is worthy of our allegiance. He alone is worthy of our worship. That's the gospel. If you're unsure what it is that Christians believe, that's it. And why must this message, why must this message go to the ends of the earth, right? Why must Jesus say in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Why must the, all these startling satellites be, be, be sent out? Because of the reality of your sin and the reality of God's righteous judgment. Heaven and hell, right? That, that is what drives Paul. The realities of heaven and hell. And he actually preaches on it. So last week in Acts 24, when Felix was keeping Paul under house arrest, he had Paul come and talk to him occasionally. And Paul preaches about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment are come. We didn't have time to go into this last week, but Felix and Drusilla were very questionable characters. They had dodgy pasts. Their past was marked, actually, by murder and divorce. And so Felix was, was vaguely interested. He was vaguely interested until it all became a little inconvenient and a little, a little too personal. And that's the case today, isn't it? I mean, no one likes to hear it, but if we never speak of the judgment, God's righteous judgment, we've not told the full gospel. There will come a time when everyone will be held accountable before God for their sins. And if Jesus hasn't taken that punishment, you will. And King Agrippa, right? King Agrippa, who we meet in this chapter, 
needed to hear this message too. King Agrippa and Bernice, they arrive with great pomp. Now, who's Bernice? Not his wife. His sister, actually. And it was well known that they were in in an incestuous relationship. And so they show up, but their timing's no accident. They too needed to hear about righteousness and and self-control and the judgment to come. They too needed to hear of the righteousness of God that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And they're going to hear all of that next week in Acts 26. Well, look, as you know, the, the elders have been working very hard behind the scenes. Occasionally we, we, make, um, we make comments to, to that end, and, and it's, it's true. We are working very hard behind the scenes to, to get our bearings and to chart a course for the future for this, for this church, for you guys. And we've been very convicted recently of the need to create missional heat. Missional heat. Explain what it means. Missional heat. That is to cultivate a heart for the lost and a passion that they be found. We've been convicted that individually, but as a church, we need to cultivate a heart for the lost and a passion that they be found. It was Paul who, who famously said that his heart's desire, his prayer was that his fellow Jews be saved. It was Jesus, wasn't it, who wept over Jerusalem because many would not recognise the time of, of God's coming. Do we have that same heart for the lost? And do we, have, do we have a passion that they be found? If not, why not? Well, I wonder whether it could be. It could be that given the time and place in which we live that we've forgotten that there's more to life than life. We've forgotten that there's more to life than life. I mean, we have it pretty good, right? I mean, we have our trials. We have our temptations. But we live in one of the most affluent countries in the world. We have access to education, healthcare, leisure. We're living the life. And yet you and I know that there is more to life than life. And we thank God for it. Because this life is not fail-safe. And it certainly isn't foolproof in every sense of the word. Have we forgotten our need? Have we forgotten our need? Have we forgotten that we were condemned? We were condemned. We were deserving of God's righteous wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sins, it is by grace that we've been saved. Never forget, this is about heaven and hell. and That's the reality of it. And the fact is that many folk, even in your own circles, are hell-bound. Now, is that just a cause for concern for you? Or is that your cause? Is that just 
a cause for concern? Or is that your cause? Because it was Paul's cause. It was Christ's cause. It was God's cause. And so it should be our cause. So friends, we're going to create missional heat, if you like, by cultivating a missional heart. And so pray, pray, pray for God to increase your love for the lost. This does not come naturally to us, okay? This does not come naturally to us. To love anyone is a work of God in our hearts. It's, it's a gift of grace. But could it be that we don't have because we have not asked? And alongside this missional heart, we must be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. So I read this this past week. Today, as Christians, we will meet opposition and persecution and face accusations. We will stand trial in the cultural courts of modernity and postmodernism. The high priests of the moral revolution will charge us with heresy and sedition. They will indict us for holding antiquated beliefs which oppose the new post-Christian status quo. Indeed, Western culture views Christian dogma as diametrically opposed to its vision of progress. That all sounds about right, doesn't it? The question, therefore, is this. Are we, as God's people, willing to give an answer for the hope that we have? If friends involved you in a discussion about a dead man named Jesus, what would you say to them? And so that's what we're going to consider next week in Acts 26. Let me pray for us. Father God, we do pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. For those that are close to us, for family, for friends, but also for those who are far away. Father, may it not just be a cause for concern, but our cause. I pray that you convict every one of us and lead us as a people, as a local church, to have this cause at the tip of our tongues, at the heart of everything that we do. May we have a passion that the lost be found. Father, we thank you for everything that you've done to us, done for us in Christ Jesus. May we remember the desperate need that we were in, that we are in, and the grace that you, that you met us with in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would create missional heat by cultivating a missional heart in each one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.